Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Duncan McCargo, one of the hosts on the channel. Director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen. I'm delighted to have with me today Eugenie Merieux, uh, Associate Professor of Public Law at the University of Harris One Pantheon-Sorbonne. We're going to be discussing her book, Constitutional Bricolage, Thailand's Sacred Monarchy versus the Rule of Law, which was published by Hart. Eugenie, welcome to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel. Hello. Nice to be here. So Constitutional Bricolage is a very wide-ranging book that it traces the evolution of Thai constitutionalism over the past 140 years or so, and there's just no way we can begin to cover all the topics that Eugenie includes in her 11 very detailed chapters. Thailand probably holds a world record for the number of constitutions promulgated over the past century, maybe around 20 since 1932, but relatively few books have directly engaged with the question of why constitutionalism and constitution drafting have assumed such overweening importance in national public life and what underpins these practices historically, ideologically, and legally. So Eugenie's book is out to do just that and to offer a new interpretation of Thai constitutionalism based on extensive scrutiny of both historical and more contemporary debates. So usually many readers are going to be intrigued by the phrase constitutional bricolage, which forms the title of your book. But what exactly does it mean? Thank you very much. So the bricolage is a word that has a, a meaning in everyday life in French. Bricolage is yes. how you repair things. And, and I think it's also passed into the English language. But I take this as a metaphor that I borrow from the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss who made a point that the way we think and the way we build stories and the way we rationalize what happens around us is based on bricolage, meaning taking a lot of improvisation, taking what's there and making something out of it and a posteriori rationalizing it into something for a a need that we have. So I take this idea to show that the way the constitution has been built over the years, over hundreds of years in high history, is built on bricolage, taking in particular from the West and from Buddhism. So if we talk about monarchy, I think that's going to be your next question. It will certainly come up. <laughs> so if we look at the monarchy, the question is the following. It's my departure point. Is Thailand a constitutional monarchy? And what I show is that Thailand is a constitutional monarchy that is based on a bricolage of various ways to understand and define monarchy. One is the Western notions of constitutional monarchy. And the other one is the Buddhist notion of monarchy or Buddhist doctrines of kingship. 
and that it is through this bricolage that has been done by bricolers, so by juries mm -hmm. and by political actors, that we get to the Thai version of monarchy today. And what is even more interesting is that even the Western notions of monarchy is itself a bricolage. So there are two ways to think about constitutional monarchy in Europe, historically. You've got the common law way to think about the monarchies, the British way, which is based on this idea that the king acts on ministerial advice. And these are the conventions that binds the monarch and that the monarch has the right to be consulted, to encourage and to warn, right? That's patriot. Mm -hmm. But then you have the continental idea of monarchy, which is more of a... Roman or Germanic way to think about the law, and the king is the one granting the constitution. He's the one who has constituent power that he exercises in the name of the king. So these two Western ideas of constitutional monarchy that are very different already have been used by the Thai juries to build the Thai way of monarchy. And if we take Buddhist notions of monarchy, it's the same. Buddhist notions or doctrines of kingship are themselves a bricolage of Hindu notions of mm -hmm. kingships that make the king a divine figure and, and Buddhist doctrines which make the king a virtuous man, a dharma raja. So everything is bricolage. And the idea of bricolage is that what matters is first to understand that there is no fixed meaning to categories and that everything is a lot of improvisation and a lot of misunderstanding, abuses of notions, shifting of meanings. Therefore, from there, I derive bricolage as being also a methodology in comparative constitutional law or in comparative law in general, meaning this is linked to the deconstruction methodology. So understanding the genealogy of concepts, where they come from, how the meaning have shifted over time, and going deep into things. So taking things seriously. Right? So in Thailand, the question is often, does the law matter? Does the constitution matter? No, it, it doesn't matter because Thailand is all about politics. It's all about the military, its force, and law has nothing to do with it. Law is just some sort of veneer uh, just to please foreigners. But that's the argument I'm writing against. I'm showing that the law matters, the constitution matters, and these have to be taken seriously to understand the role of the monarchy. Great. Yeah, you have gone on to get into some of the other things I wanted to ask you about, but let's just proceed and uh, try to focus in on a, on a couple of those questions that you brought up. So you talk about the methodology, and you talk in the book about using an ethnographic methodology. But actually, the book draws mainly on written sources, an awful lot of Thai sources, including academic works in Thai. How did you go about gathering the materials from which constitutional bricolage is constructed? So I would like first to invite you to look at the, at the bibliography, where you will mm -hmm. see that the Thai sources are much more numerous than the, the other languages' sources. Why? Because yeah. my primary material are of two kinds. First written constitutions and other legal material, such as court rulings and uh, Thai handbooks of constitutional law. So these are the main material that I used. These correspond to three layers of the legal order of Thailand that I'm deconstructing uh, in that book. The first one is the positive law. 
positive law, so the constitutions. And I also looked at the constitution drafting assembly minutes, which is a lot of work for uh, constitutions from 1932 up until uh, 2017. And then um, second one are Thai legal handbooks, so written in order to teach law to Thai students, to teach Thai students about their Thai legal order. This is also a lot of material. And this corresponds to doctrines, which is another layer of the constitutional order. And the third one are court rulings. These court rulings correspond to third layer, which is interpretation of the law thanks to doctrines. And these three layers together form what I call the constitutional order of Thailand. And the ethnography methodology is to detail this and describe these layers one after the other. It is derived from uh, the Goethean approach to anthropology, where he defined methodology of thick description. Sikh description is the idea that we need to look at a foreign culture by deciphering the various meanings at various depths of that culture, culture being understood as a text. So I do the same. Looking at a constitutional order, I see various layers that have to be deciphered one after the other. And I see positive law as layer number one, doctrinal writings as layer number two, giving meaning to the layer number one. And third layer being the practices, the interpretation of that law by actors, political actors. And I put courts in political actors. And I also used, sorry, I forgot to mention, the statements by the king, the royal speeches, the royal correspondence. I used a lot of material that was not used before, which is the correspondence between King Prajatipok and the People's Party at the time when the king was in England and trying to think whether or not he was going to abdicate. Um, and there was a big conflict between the king, Pajatipok, and the People's Party. And so I used that correspondence as well as uh, the third layer, the interpretation of the law but by various political actors. So here we could see how on the same constitution, the 1932 constitution, King uh, Pajatipok and the People's Party had conflicting interpretations. So here are the three layers that I consider to be making up a constitutional order and applying ethnographic description or layered description to them is to describe and write about these various layers. Now, there is also, uh, as part of the third layer, another aspect which is rituals and which is monuments. I couldn't really develop this in the book because it's already, I don't remember, 350 pages or so. But I have other articles on this. So another way to do ethnography is also to look at monuments, to look at uh, all sorts of uh, symbolic elements in a culture and take that as entry point into the constitutional culture of a country here, Thailand. That's great. Yes, and absolutely. There's an incredibly rich range of Thai language sources, as you say, listed in the bibliography and extensively drawn upon in the book. I do want to come back to this question, which you already brought up about whether Thailand's a constitutional monarchy. I realize that there are different notions of constitutional monarchy. And as somebody from Britain, I sort of grew up with this <laughs> notion that Britain's a constitutional monarchy, which we might also want to question. But is this notion of a constitutional monarchy 
a valid way of understanding what the Thai monarchy is? Or is it just a kind of an, an ideal type that you're juxtapositioning against the reality of the Thai monarchy in order to unpack its constitutional position? So there are various ways to understand your question. My entry point was to challenge the question that is used as an, an entry point by other scholars when looking at the Thai monarchy. The question being, is Thailand truly a constitutional monarchy? Is the Thai king uh, truly constrained by the law? The answer being usually no. And therefore, from that entry point, most of the scholarship on Thai on the Thai monarchy and on Thai law have been of two categories. The first one is what I call the compatibility question literature, which is, is Thai political culture compatible with democracy? Is Thai political culture compatible with the British style of constitutional monarchy? That being the first category of scholarship. And the second one is driven by another question, which is related, which is the convergence question. And it's a more normatively oriented scholarship, which looks at how or what should be done, what reform should be done in order to bring the Thai political system in line with the British constitutional monarchy. And these two ways to think about Thai monarchy today are also very pervasive in Thailand. And if we look at the Thai protest in 2020, which were amazing protests that I had uh, the chance to uh, observe and, and be part of as an observer, as a participant uh, observer, is the same. So one of the points of the manifesto that was given by the free use movement to the Privy Council was we need to reform the Thai monarchy in order to have a British style constitutional monarchy. And that's fine. And I'm really fine with having that kind of activism and that kind of gold standard. And this is a fiction of that gold standard that can be useful. And I do not dismiss that. But as part of critical scholarship, what I want to do is also to show how the very category of constitutional monarchy must be challenged and how it is itself, first, it is itself a bricolage. And second, it is completely idealized as being working perfectly, as being fully legal, as having no uh, point of contention, no problems with democracy and no room left for arbitrariness. And what I've been trying to do in this book is to show that the question, the category of constitutional monarchy itself must be questioned. And we should get rid of that dichotomy between the ruling monarch and the uh, British-style monarch, because things are much more complex than that. Yeah, certainly totally agree with that. And there's so many interesting historical points that come out in the book that uh, I didn't know before, or things that I possibly had forgotten. One that might surprise a lot of readers is the extent to which, in the early years following the end of the absolute monarchy in 1932, the constitution itself became a kind of object of veneration and, and even worship partially, as you argue, replacing the position previously held by kings themselves. Can you explain something about this idea? This is uh, also tied to Buddhism. So Pridipanomion was educated in France, and the revolution, as we all know, was conceived of in Rue du Saumurat, not far from yes. where, where I uh, teach, right. Melbourne. And uh, the planning was done, and a few years after they all returned to, to Siam at the time, they staged the revolution. 
Now, um, whether it was Pridipanomyong or Pibun Songkram, they had ideas that were also a bricolage, or at least that were um, syncretic based on their various influences. And Pridi was very much inspired by socialism, which is anti-monarchic and anti-Buddhist or anti-religious, while Pibun was inspired by the, let's say, the authoritarianism of uh, legalism or the legalist authoritarianism and later by fascism. In any case, they tried to change the Siamese political system by having a Western type of constitutional monarchy. In doing so, the first constitution was fully uh, Republican. Even though it still kept the monarch, it was Republican. It was um, clear that when Pridipanomyong imposed the constitution on King Prajatipok, he said, well, if you don't abide, then we will have a republic. And so he, uh, King Prajatipok, accepted, saying this is only a temporary constitution, and then was placed under the constitution. But if you read the first constitution, there is no sacredness of the king in it. And the king can be tried by the assembly, just like by the legislature, just like it was the case in 1791 in France during the French Revolution. And in the end, we know how it ended up, right? Uh, Louis XVI was guillotined. So you had that. But at the same time, they saw very early on that it was not working and that the constitution was completely, was not driving people's emotion in, in Siam like it was the case in the US, for instance, or even in France to some extent. So they needed to put some to give it some sacred nature, to give that constitution the sacred nature. And the way to do this was to displace the sacredness of the king onto the constitution. Using what? Using Buddhism. And so Buddhism was relied on, which is interesting. But actually, if you look at Pridipanomyong's life story, you see how Buddhist he was. And perhaps even how royalist he was. I mean, that's up for debate. Um, in any case, they used that artifact. So they did everything the king had done to build his aura and, trans and did the same for the constitution. So constitution replicas were sent everywhere in the country. There were association for the worship of the constitution. There was a constitution day. There were constitution festivals. And there were all sorts of things to make the constitution replace the king. And if you look at democracy monuments, it's exactly the same story. You have right in the middle of democracy monuments that huge constitution that is symbolized by a golden samutai on a panwenfa. So using Buddhism to give the constitution a sacred character, right? Even writing the constitution into the using the same format as the Three Seals Code, which itself is built on the Pratamasat, which is uh, also a Buddhist-inspired sacred law. So all of this has been made in order to transfer that sacredness. And one funny thing that I read when I was doing work on that correspondence between Pajatipok and the, and the People's Party was when, <laughs> once when the king really got fed up with that and said, well, stop uh, putting candles everywhere around the constitution. This is nonsensical. The constitution is, is just a piece of paper. 
in, in substance, we have to find the quote again, but that, that was really the idea. And it kind of worked in Thailand. Today, the constitution has some aura, some sacredness attached to it. And you can see its image everywhere. You have to stop me, Duncan. <laughs> yes. And I also find this particular topic extremely fascinating, the, the sacralization of the constitution. Yes, the desacralization of, of monarchy paralleled by a sacralization of the constitution, a topic to be, to be explored further. And another central idea of recent Thai constitutionalism is the concept that you term DKHS, democracy with the king as head of state. And to the non-specialist, that just sounds very bland, almost generic. But how do you believe that DKHS became such an important discursive and rhetorical device in Thailand's politics and constitutional order? So DKHS is the paradigmatic example of bricolage. You see how it shifted. So it first started as one sentence in a constitution. In the 1949 constitution, you start having mention of Thailand being a constitutional monarchy and having the king as head of state. Well, this was roughly a translation of constitutional monarchy. But then, little by little, it took on a meaning of its own based on legal doctrines. So first, it became a way to define Thailand as being different from the Western monarchy. This is doctrinal writings in the 70s by Tanin Kraivichien, who, as the, the ones listening to us will know, he was a prime minister, one of the most perhaps right-wing prime ministers Thailand ever had. He had been a prime minister following advice given in that direction by the king when he was talking with the uh, coup makers before the coup was done. And the king is the one who has suggested Tanin as prime minister. In any case, Tanin has been developing this idea that democracy with the king as head of state is specific to Thailand and has various legal doctrines attached to it. And one of these doctrines being that the king has constituent power and that the king has extra constitutional powers in times of crisis. And this has found its way in the constitution, in particular in the 1997 and 2007 and 2017 constitution, the, the three seven constitutions, in which there is a provision that uh, whenever there is a crisis or whenever there is no provision of that constitution applying to a specific case, then constitutional custom, or it depends how you translate it, prapeni, uh, practices of the DKHS have to be applied. And this, in the 2017 constitution, this DKHS build it, built on notions of British monarchy and uh, continental Europe monarchy and Buddhist doctrines of kingship, now he's fully normative. It is 14 times mentioned in the 2017 constitution. It is protected by an eternity clause. Eternity clause meaning you cannot revise that article and you cannot revise the provisions related to DKHS in the constitution. It is protected by also sanctioning any political parties that would be whose actions would be deemed a threat to DKHS. It is also linked to the Les Majesté law that was a ruling in 2012 by the Constitutional Court. So this DKHS now fully locks the Thai constitutional order and has acquired a very autonomy and very normative with 
concrete legal consequences. And that is tied back to my point, which is the main argument of the book, is that law matters, the constitution matters, and DKHS is a specific interpretation of the constitution that has been made by conservative royalist Buddhist scholars, but that is now bearing very legal effects because it's enshrined in the law and applied by the courts. Yeah, no, it's obviously such a central idea and it's far more important than the very sort of normal sounding phrase would suggest. Something that's much more self-evidently not so normal in Thailand is that as well as all the constitutions, there are all the coups and that most of the constitutions of recent years have been precipitated by processes of coups. How can military coups, which are an apparent violation of the rule of law, coexist with constitutionalism in the Thai context? That's a question that has been addressed by Thai constitutional scholars as well. So in line and in continuity with the work of Tanin Kravichian in the 70s, building the first layer of that doctrine of DKHS, we have now a doctrine called the doctrine of shared sovereignty that explains how the military coup is actually in line with DKHS. And so Thai understanding of constitutional monarchy, Thai understanding of the rule of law. And this is a doctrine developed by Bowensak Uwanu uh, in particular, and Vishnu Kriangam as well, in which the king being the bearer of sovereignty and having constituent power, whenever the military stages a coup, then power returns to the king. And the king being elected, this is the Mahasamatha doctrine, the Buddhist doctrine of the elected king, the king being elected, then it is a, a return of power to the people whenever the, the military stages a coup. And so this is how, through these doctrinal writings and doctrinal explanations of how military coup are part of DKHS, that this apparent paradox is resolved. And this is also an illustration for me as a legal scholar, what law is and how it can be interpreted in any possible way, depends on which doctrinal writings, which interpretations became dominant. And you can see that even in the case law of the Constitutional Court, there has been a case, uh, I think it was in 2006, when the coup was challenged as being a way to overthrow democracy with the king as head of state. But the court ruled that this was not the case. So in other words, staging a military coup is not seen as an attempt to overthrow DKHS as per the ruling of the court, in line with the doctrinal writings on DKHS. Yes, it's an extraordinarily fascinating and complicated topic, but one that I think will many people will get some deeper insight into from the book. One of the most fascinating parts of the book also for me was the discussion of the role of those two scholars, Bawonsak and Wisanu, who you've just mentioned. Of course, Wisanu, the very much the right-hand man of the current government, deputy prime minister and legal expert and enforcer for the ruling administration. How can you explain the role that constitutional scholars like Bawonsak uh, and Wissanu, who've assumed very senior administrative positions within the Thai state, perform? Because it doesn't seem to have very obvious parallels with a lot of other countries. Legal scholars have a, a special place, as it were, in Thailand's order. 
Well, that's an, also one point worth not noticing and going contrario to the argument whereby Thai law does not matter. If Thai law does not matter, then why would legal scholars be given such an important mm. place in Thai politics? So that's precisely because there have been so many coups in Thai history and because the law is <laughs> is so central as per my argument that Thai legal scholars have had such a prominent place. Each time a coup has to be staged, there must be preparation to it. Uh, I'm sure you will agree on that. Mm -hmm. And this preparation involves legal preparation. The legal consequences of the coup have to be anticipated. A new interim constitution has to be drafted. And this has to be involving the best legal experts. And therefore, legal scholars such as Vishnu, Kuangam and Bowen Sahuonu have been promoted because they've worked so closely with the, the military. Not only do they have to draft constitution in preparation of a future coup, but they also then are appointed to constitution drafting assemblies and then to courts and then to all the constitutional organs that are part of the structure of the Thai state since the uh, 1997 constitution. There is a very high degree of endogamy also within the Thai elites. The military and the legal elites have been working so closely with one another in relation to the building of that DKHS, in relation to the king also and the king's entourage, that they are exercising very important political powers in the Thai polity. Right. And these two figures are also representative of a larger group. They're just two of the most outstanding figures in quite yes. a, a significant class of, of people. Yeah. And I just wanted to add that if you look at the King's Privy Council, which now has lost quite importance that it used to have under King Bumipun. But if you looked at the history of Thai constitutional monarchy, it's basically the, the history of Bumipun Aduliadet. And during this time, the appointments at the Privy Council have been mainly of two categories, the jurists and the military. And this has also linked those two professions together at the apex of the Thai state around the king. Absolutely. So usually you've been working on Thai constitutionalism for a good few years now, and this book seems to be the culmination of a, a lot of what you've been working on. Are you taking this project in a new direction? What lies ahead for you? Okay, thank you for that question. Yes, this book is a culmination. I've tried to write the book I wanted to read about Thailand and to make it at, as comprehensive as possible. Um, now, there are still many questions that lie ahead and that I invite in the conclusion my colleagues to take further. Uh, questions about methodology, questions about um, epistemology, and questions about how to deal with Thailand when you are a foreign scholar, how to get rid of value judgments, and how to get rid of all sorts of preconceived biases that we have as foreign scholars. But it's also a book that I wanted to write for a Thai audience. And by the way, it will be translated. It should come out this year. Mm. Uh, I have to review the translation and I have to say this is <laughs> uh, quite a torture since I've oh, written yes. that yes. in French, <laughs> in English, yes. and now I have the Thai version. Anyway, I also invite my Thai colleagues to take on further work in the writing of, of the Thai constitutional history 
and in questioning their relationship to the gold standard of the constitutional monarchy um, in the West and um, to kind of have a position that transcends the usual dichotomy in Thai scholarship between one, the Buddhist uh, nationalist and then the uh, revolutionary, not so Buddhist, one being aligned with a very relativism or cultural relativism uh, school of thought, being the nationalist, the Buddhist, the royalist, and the other one being extremely Western, pro-Western. And I think both schools of thought have things to bring to one another, and that both of them are have their own limitations, and they should perhaps enter into dialogue with one another and build a third way, something that goes beyond these two very stereotypical way to look at Thailand, either as a beacon of resistance to the Western hegemony on the one hand, or either as some retarded country that should be inspired by the West. I think there, there is something, an interesting dialogue to build here and now, as of now, I think the, this dialogue is too simplistic and there, there is so much more to explore. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does. Thanks, Eugenie, for sharing your thoughts on your book and all of these larger questions about the nature of Thai constitutionalism and how to study these vexed questions, what kind of methodology and what kind of approach to adopt. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation. You've been listening to the New Books Network Southeast Asian Studies channel. I'm Duncan McCargo, Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen, and I've been in conversation with Eugenie Meria about her wide-ranging new book, Constitutional Bricolage, Thailand's Sacred Monarchy versus the Rule of Law, 